Hello and welcome to the Healthy Entrepreneur Club podcast. A healthy entrepreneur is someone who achieves business success whilst prioritising their physical and mental well-being. In other words, they understand the healthy hustle. They possess the ability to effectively manage their business operations, make strategic decisions and nurture their personal health and brand for sustainable growth and long-term success. Today's guest is James Church. James is the co-founder and COO of Robot Mascot, the UK's leading investment readiness agency and award-winning company. He's also the author of The Investable Entrepreneur. James, thank you so much for joining us. Great to see you. Yeah, and, and you. Thanks for having me. Thrilled, thrilled to be here. Great to have you. I really want to jump in for our listeners now and just go straight back to the beginning of your journey. So, so just talk us through how you started uh, Robot Mascot and how you sort of developed the company into what it is today. Yeah, so, I mean, Ro- Robot Mascot originally started life as a brand communications agency. It was, it was founded by my um, business partner, Nicholas Ruston. He's like a brand uh, guru. I was going to use the word guru. I hate that word. Why would I, would I use that? But um, yeah, he's a brand expert, shall we say. He's built hundreds of brands across across many different sectors, multi-million dollar brands, and, and, and started this brand communication agency. Um, I joined um, a few months later, 18 months later, uh, as kind of chief operations officer. I come from more of a, a marketing background. So we, we first met at brand and design agencies and worked well together. I, I, I joined him 18 months into the venture as, as the operations officer, kind of leveraging the marketing side of my of my skill set. And, you know, brand agencies are tough, right? There's There's millions of them. You can throw a stone in any major city and you're bound to hit the window of a brand agency. They're, they're everywhere. So having having cut through, um, having a unique proposition, having a niche uh, was really was uh, really difficult. We were new at business. We were great at the work we did, new at business, didn't really know how to build a business. And over time, we realized that we had a superpower and that, and that superpower was making complex ideas simple and easy for people to understand. And... To cut a long story short, we started applying that to to startups seeking investment, mainly because they were clients of ours who were building their brand and then they wanted to go and raise some investment. And we started with their pitch decks and investors saw them, investors liked them. They were getting great results. Um, and we kind of thought there's something here. There's something interesting here. Um, started going to some startup conferences and events and realized that this was a massively growing sector. Investment was rising year on year and alarming rate like an incredible amount of money going going into these startups so we thought we need to take advantage of this and we we started an 18 month pivot from a brand communications agency into a niche investor communications agency applying the same thinking the same brand led thinking but doing it to business strategy financial strategy pitch decks for investors and and kind of um taking the taking it forward from there and 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 kind of Having that kind of startup consultancy, but with that special source being that layer of of brand communication, and uh, yeah, sort of being not looked back since. Sort of making that step into a into a niche. It's been it's been a whirlwind since then. Yeah, it's awesome for anyone that doesn't know James's story in Robot Mascot. It's, it's such an interesting one because you know when you look at even your website, I'd recommend anyone goes to your website even if they're not looking for investment because there's so much stuff on there that you can learn from. And the thing that you spoke about there that really resonates with me, and I think you are 
so well positioned in the market for is is that brand segment because it is such visually appealing stuff that you do. So how important is the actual brand element and the visuals to an investment deck and, and an investor that's now you know looking at a startup? Yeah, massively. Um, so brand can be thought about in a few different ways. And you can talk about the brand communication, which is the language you use to explain your value proposition, what you do, what do you stand for, what's your big vision beyond making money. And obviously that stuff's super important to getting a, a, an investor to buy into your concept. You've got this incredible concept. You know it's awesome, but you have to somehow get this this third party that's never heard of you, doesn't know what you do, probably has never really thought much about the sector in which you operate. And you've got to convince them that this is an incredible opportunity um, and that you're the person to make that happen. So so the communication there, the, the brand communication of, of selling in that vision, that value proposition, getting people to buy into that and want to be part of it to the tune of hundreds of thousands, if not millions of, of dollars. Is a, is a really important skill. But you can also think about brand as the visual side, the way it looks, the way it, the way it portrays itself visually. And again, that is super, super important because we're all human, even investors, they're not robots, they're humans. They're, they, um, they kind of see things through their eyes first. They see the visuals first before they read everything, anything. And, and you kind of want to look like the billion dollar business you're, you're promising to become. You want to look like that established brand that, that owns a place in the market that they can get behind and they can get excited by and, and i think it's something like i think four seconds it takes for uh for for someone to di digest visual information and we digest yeah. that ten thousand times quicker than words so like within a few seconds an investor's sitting there thinking this looks awesome tell me more or they're going oh this looks a bit crap like i suppose i better look through the deck just in case i'm missing out on some gold here and if you've got the psychologically, if the investor is looking at it going, oh, that looks a bit crap, but I suppose I better, I better give it a shot, is in a very different mindset when absorbing all the information you want to share versus the one that says, this looks awesome. I'm excited to sort of jump into this. And it's just those little psychological moments um, give you that competitive edge that mean is the difference between your deck becoming a meeting, your meeting becoming investment. Um, and it's it's playing with those little marginal gains um, that you need to do to kind of be in the elite group that, that actually close a round of, of, of capital. Yeah, it's so interesting. And, and, you know, it makes me think of something like Dragon's Den in the UK or Shark Tank in the US. I'm sure there's other names around the world for these shows where you go on and you pitch to almost celebrity investors. And you can see in, in a lot of those clips that the investor as soon as someone walks in, they're already judging the person. They've already seen the product as maybe a stand. They're judging the branding. They're judging everything. And then it's almost an uphill struggle if the branding or the, the premise of the product is not exactly what they want. And sometimes, like you say, they look through the, the deck or they hear the pitch and then they start to invest and they start to come around. But actually, that immediate, like you say, three or four seconds, and it's the same for a website, the same when you meet a person in in uh, in in person you you yeah. do judge so so quickly and i really like the idea of the the psychology behind it so you know like you say an investor is very much a real person and they're just sitting looking at another pitch deck right so what are some of the things you can do to sort of manipulate the psychology of what someone's looking at there's some things you can think about or talk to that are you know more obvious than not or work better than not yeah um so beyond the visual because obviously getting getting that looking looking great is is super important obviously more so for consumer-led brands if you're if you're pitching the idea that you can go and get millions of consumers to buy this product then that that branding is a key component of, of a 
entrepreneur entrepreneur's ability so if you can't get that right then um that says a lot about what this business might become um but even in a b2b an enterprise kind of um scenario you know brand is becoming more and more uh important and and it's that it's that kind of leverage that extra little bit of 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 something that you've got that excites the the investor so super important for both camps from a communication standpoint i think the I always kind of refer to my uh, the five acts of the perfect pitch, which are, which is sort of a methodology we've created within the kind of wider the wider proposition of becoming an investable entrepreneur. But when it comes specifically to the pitch, if you can think about delivering five key components in your pitch in the following order, it really has a massive effect. So the first is the big vision. What's your big vision? I call it the hook. Um, what's your vision beyond making money? Then the essence, what's your value proposition? What's the problem you're solving, the solution you're offering? Why should this exist in the world? Then the evidence, what's some tangible evidence that suggests this is a goer? This is something the market wants, something the market needs. What's the plan of action? What's the strategic plan of action for your um, for your business? How are you going to take the money and, and turn that into a successful business that delivers me a return on my investment? And then an ask, how much do you need? What's the financial mm -hmm. result of, of spending that money? And, and how much equity am I going to get uh, as a result? So if you can do that, the, the, the hook, the essence, the evidence, the plan and the ask, you've created a narrative there, like a story arc, like you get in a film. Because most of the best plays in history, Shakespeare was a massive fan of a five-act play because it creates a lovely narrative and a lovely story. The ancient Greeks were the first to use a five-act uh, structure to their to their storytelling, to their playwriting. So psychologically, we've been delivered stories in this way for centuries. So if you deliver those components and if you look at the definition of a five-act structure in storytelling and you compare that to what I just said, you can see there's definite similarities and you can use that kind of tried and tested formula that we're just psychologically used to, to structure the information you deliver in a way that just makes the investor feel comfortable with the information you're sharing. You know, the first couple of acts are all about having an emotional connection. It's the vision, it's the essence, it's the evidence. The final couple of acts is the plan and the ask. It's about having a logical connection, speaking to the head. So if you can start to think about head and heart and these kind of these story structures within what you communicate, you can you can have a massive competitive advantage versus the 100, 150 other pitch decks they see every single week in their in their inbox. Wow, that's interesting. That's really interesting. I didn't I didn't know that you sort of have been able to break it down so clear and then relate it back to something that is so, you know, ingrained in us. That's amazing to hear. Yeah, that's it's, actually really cool. It's actually sounds simpler than it is as well right if everyone could do this we'd all be you know super rich it's harder said than done which is why we need people like you to help but you know that's so interesting and you know i've heard you speak before and uh, your book that you touched on there the investable entrepreneur it really demonstrates and i've seen you write some in your uh, in a few places as well the frustration that you've you've seen or you have when founders aren't able to raise that capital and ideas aren't able to go from, um, you know, just being an idea on paper to actual implementation. Um, and that, that's something that I think a lot of people must resonate with. You know, if you're listening to this and you're an entrepreneur and you know the struggle of I've got a great idea, I know I can do it, but I can't get it out there. It's the, it's the same thing for investor, right? That's what you what you've seen. Yeah, countless I mean times. That's that's why we do what we do and why we get out of bed in the morning, like me and my co-founder, Nick. We're, we're ideas people. We love ideas. We come from brand and creativity and marketing. And, and that is a whole industry based on ideas. And and 
my co-founder nick he's a or the founder of the business he, he's an artist so it's uh, as well he, he's kind of had a career in art and, and sold a lot of a lot of art to some wealthy individuals and that's all about ideas you know it's all about creativity so so we're passionate about ideas and, and when we wanted to create robot mascot back in the day when it was a brand agency we we very much defined that our, our audience was someone who who loved ideas they were pioneers they were innovators and we call kind of in our brand guidelines the the, the type of individual the type of startup founder we work with is a pioneer they're, they're they're trying to they're not just starting another business that's the run of the mill same as as everything else they're trying to innovate whether that be through process or through technology or whatever it may be but they're trying to create something new and different and innovative in their space they're the types of people we want to work with and, and it just it's so frustrating to see all of these incredible ideas fail to raise investment when we know it all, it, all it's down to is is poor communication if they could communicate their idea in a better way they'd get the investment that they that they need and, and there's so many startups out there or founders that are sitting there maybe in an incubator or an accelerator and they see kind of someone else go and raise loads of funding and you think their idea is nothing on mine why are they getting the money and not me and, and normally it's just because they can tell a better story not because their idea is any better. Their ideas don't raise investment. Communication of that idea is the thing that, that closes the deal. For sure, yeah. And so do you think you've had to become or learn or become a master of the art of persuasion as a part of what you're doing in, in communicating that? I would say there's definitely an element of... Um, if, if Robot Mascot were to ever fail, I could probably become a, a, a spin doctor for a politician. Um, <laughs> there's definitely an element of kind of looking at the data available about a particular business and how we present that in the most positive light. What do we what do we not say to make sure we get that meeting? And then how do we frame the conversation through the rest of the of the journey, through the business plan and the financials to 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 demonstrate to an investor what we want them to see without obviously we can't lie there's there's regulation you have to make sure they have all the facts but presenting them in a certain way highlighting certain ones over others is definitely a key part of the of the journey and kind of making sure that your story comes through and and you're kind of talking about your business on your terms about the things that matter to you while also covering the things that investors want to know in a way that makes them excited so yeah, there's definitely an art of persuasion. There's definitely kind of a bit of spin occasionally on on some points. Um, all done in a way that means that you you're not lying. You know, that's the most. It's got to be authentic. It's got to be real. I think the spin doctor analogy is probably a little bit too aggressive, um, but it's sure. you know it gets the point across. It's just about making sure that it's presented in a way that's persuasive and and gets um, gets the the viewer in in this case the investor to to take some action and and stick you above anyone else on that kind of shortlist. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, with your your methodology there, you you basically went over the fundamentals of of investment and how you can get ready for it. So people that are listening to this and maybe don't understand if they should be looking for investment, what what can you gain investment for in your opinion? What do you see most of if people someone goes or someone would benefit the most from taking investment on? Yeah, I think I mean Theoretically, anyone can raise investment for anything. Um, it's about finding the right investor that aligns with that vision and that value proposition I talked about. So it doesn't matter whether you are starting up a new restaurant or a hotel or whether you have you know, a new technology idea, whether you're doing something in AI, machine learning, deep tech in space, like who, who knows, right? Any, any business sector can, can raise investments. Some are more active than others and some have more investors in them than, than, than others. But fundamentally, there's you need to approach investment as a stepping stone. 
a process. So a lot of founders, the mistake they make is I need five million dollars to get my idea off the ground that will fund me for the next three to four years to get to the point where i can reach profitability and then the business can self-fund itself from there what you should really be doing is breaking that down into manageable chunks because that de-risks the investment for the investor you can take on some money prove some points and then take on some more money um, and actually longer term it means that you retain more equity in your business as well you actually sell less equity along the way so the first kind of round because that's how they, that when you split up the investment required, they're known as rounds of investment. So the first round is usually, sometimes this is self-funded, um, but you, if you're bringing in external investment, that's usually to say, look, I've got a concept, I've done some hustling and I've figured out what the market wants, what the market needs. I've done some surveys and focus groups and I've got kind of an idea of, of what I need here, but I now need to quit my job. I need to focus this on this full time and I need to create the product and I need to get my first handful of customers. And I need time to do that. I maybe need a small team to do that. Maybe I even need to invest in some technology to do that. So it's kind of how much money do you need to get to that point to get a very basic version of the product, not the full version, but just a basic version of your of your offer into the market with some BC users, some first customers to prove that you can solve that problem. You can run a business and you can generate a little bit of money from it. Then you can raise your next round of investment to say, right, well, I'm earning a couple of grand in revenues. I need to take this up to, to 80 grand a month in, in revenues. Because once I'm at 80K a month, that's essentially a million a year. So if I can get it to that point, then we've now got a, we've now transitioned from an early stage concept business into a more established business that, that would de be deemed to have product market fit. You've got a product that the market wants to the tune of being able to make a million a year. Once you've unlocked that milestone, you then raise your next round of investment and that's to say, right, we're at a million. How do we get this to 10 million or 20 million? And then it keeps going. Like we're at 20 million. How do we get it to a hundred million? And now we need 20 million investment to make that happen or whatever it may be. So it's usually like a few hundred grand on the lower end, one to 500 grand, then maybe 500 to 1.52 million and then two to 5 million and then maybe five to 20 million. And, and you go through those stepping stones and you raise a, a little bit at a time to just prove that you can make these things happen. So rather than me gambling 5 million on you over the next three years, let me gamble 300K right now, get it to the point where you're earning two to 10 grand in revenue a month from the business as a result of my 300K. Now come, then come back to me and ask for 1.5 million to get, get it from 20K a month to 80K a month and so on and so forth. Yeah. It makes sense, doesn't it? It's almost, it's almost gated. You're, you're gating the risk. I think that's, that's really that's cool. That's obviously a reason they do that, right? So yeah. what you touched there upon the way that it currently works and and the, the, mis, the misconceptions, I guess. What's the biggest common myth that you see in, in investment when people come to you? Do they... Because I, I think there's actually a stigma around investment that it's is scary. You know, you, you don't want to give your equity up. You think that there's going to be someone now sat on your board who's going to make decisions for you. Maybe some people think that's a good thing. Others are terrified of that. What's the biggest myth that you see that yeah. you know, maybe yeah. people or maybe it's maybe that, that's know. probably a good point to to talk about. To be honest, I think that's that's absolutely a common concern. One that they think investors are nasty because that's how they're portrayed on TV in Shark Tank and Dragon's Den and and uh, or whatever it may be that they're that they're ruthless and yeah of course they're ruthless business people but ultimately they're they try to position themselves as the founder's friend they they they're there to support and guide them and they're busy and they're not always going to get back to to people that haven't put the effort in you haven't 
done all the things we've talked about today but if you put all the effort in and they can see that you're really trying hard here with this business and perhaps you've just you're just not the right fit for them or you're you're off off by a couple of points you know they'll 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 often be there to support you certainly their portfolio companies they're there to support and guide often not take over it's also key to say that that when you're doing those first few rounds of investment splitting this out and, and doing those first few rounds of investment um most people there are bringing on what I call smart money. So you're you're bringing in capital, but you're also bringing on board an advisor, a strategic partner who can say, look, I've got a, I, I've built a business like yours and exited it for hundreds of millions. I know the roadmap you need to go down and I can be here to support and guide you through that. Or I've got a particular area of expertise in, in marketing to your audience and I can lift and shift and explain to you this strategy we've used time and again to target and convert your audience and we can apply that to your product. So you're bringing in this knowledge into the business and that allows you to get to 10K a month to 80K a month within 12 mm. months so that you could go and raise your next round of investment. So often it's not a case that they're coming in to take over. They're coming in to, to support you because they love you. They love the vision. They love the value proposition. They want to be part of the journey. Now you can always, you're in control. Right. They, they own maybe 15, 20 percent of the business maximum. I wouldn't sell any more than that. Some of the deals you see on TV are the wrong deals. People are giving 50 or more percent of their, their company away. <laughs> 10, 20 percent maximum um, each round of investment. Make sure you're in control for, for most of the time. It's only when you really get to those big VC rounds and you're raising five 20 million at a sort of round three, round four, that you really need to start worrying about control. And by that point, it's a big business. There's lots of entities and, and you probably have little control as the founder anyway. You've got CEOs and CFOs and directors kind of all getting involved by that point anyway. And it's a different beast. So I wouldn't worry too much. Um, obviously, do your due diligence on investors. There are some investors who are awful. Um, and I would always ask, the, uh, I would always advise founders to go and ask if you can't find it out online, go and ask those prospective investors for some details on their portfolio companies and then go and contact the founders of those portfolio companies and say, look, so-and-so's offered to invest in my business. Should I take it or not? And they might go, absolutely best decision we ever made. Or they might go, don't touch it with a butt. They've been an absolute pain in the ass. Like constantly wanting information every week. We end up on a call with them. They're always worried about where their money's going and what we're doing. We can't get on with anything because they're just constantly micromanaging us. So find out, do your own, they're doing their due diligence on you as a founder. You do your due diligence on them as a, uh, uh, as an investor and, and make sure that you're getting, getting in a relationship with the right individual that, that meets your needs and is aligned to your vision. So that's really interesting because I next, my next question, I wanted to talk about the different types of, of investment because, or investors, because I think a lot of people, you know, we've touched on that they don't understand investment. And I think that some people won't understand, you know, the different levels of, of you know, you mentioned VC as private equity, and then there's mm -hmm. angels. It'd be, it'd be good to hear your point of view of, yeah. of what these people are. And obviously they come in at different stages, but they're sort of who you should be looking at dependent on maybe your business or your, your, your stage of, of business, yeah. I guess. So the first place you should look, I think, is high net worth individuals. So they're not even necessarily officially investors. They're just high net worth individuals in your sector, in your space. They're the ones who are most likely to fund the concept stage of your business. If you think about Dragon's Den or something like that, 
if you think about the profile of all the investors on that um, on that TV show, they always end up saying yes to the deals that they understand the most. Deborah Meaden's always investing in the hospitality business. Peter Jones always investing in the tech and the uh, and the uh, into the, the the telephone type businesses and the and the internet and technology businesses. They all have their area of expertise where they know they can add value and they also understand the business well enough to make an informed decision on it. So the best thing you can do is go, this is my concept. This is what I want to achieve. Let's go and pitch to high net worth individuals in my space, C-level executives, directors, exited founders who have been operating in your sector for a long time because they can bring contacts, knowledge and money. Then you have professional angel investors are the next step up. And these are people that have decided that they're taking the step from maybe backing a couple of individuals that they love into a more professional portfolio where they go, right, I'm going to make 10 investments a year. Of those, I know how many, typically how many will fail. I'm trying to make the best strategic bet. This is about the return on investment, not just giving back to the next generation. So they're much more, they, they operate a bit more like in a professional investment fund, but they're an angel investor. They're doing it with their own capital. They're a bit more professional about it. Um, they probably get more deal flow because they promote themselves on LinkedIn or somewhere as an investor. So they're getting 100 pitch decks a week, whereas the high net worth individual, it will be like, oh, wow, no one's ever asked me to invest before. Like, this sounds cool, though. Like, let's chat. Um, so these are more professional um, high net worth individuals who are who are doing it for a financial gain more than anything else. Then you have early stage investment funds, venture capital funds who are focused on early stage. So they act, they basically pool the cash of angel investors or high net worth individuals and say, we're going to invest this on your behalf. And they invest in those early stage rounds, the first one to two rounds of investment. And then you have your classic venture capital fund and these are high growth you're normally already at a million in revenue before you pitch to these types of characters they're a professional fund they they have a hundred million dollar fund and they invest it into businesses writing checks of maybe two to ten million and they're a professional outfit they do a load of due diligence all the all the, they've got a whole legal team and a finance team and a and an investment analyst team and and they all kind of work together to to verify the deal um, and they tend to get their money from hedge funds and mm -hmm. from insurance companies or from pension funds and they're they've promised their clients a return on their investment so that they can pay out their pensions from the pension fund if they don't they're screwed so they need to they they're obviously looking at this from a very different um, perspective it's high risk still but they're they're they've got institutional clients that, that they want it that they're promised a return on investment from so it's sort of quite a range as yeah, you absolutely. go through the first sort of three to four years of your startup funding journey it's you're quickly quickly moving from kind of the hobbyist high net worth individual to the very professional looking fund that and that's where they have they have all the deal terms that founders are terrified of Sure. And also yeah, in VC, they might put an entrepreneur in residence into your business, right? They might start to help yeah. you run it. They might have, okay. they might do that. They might have someone specifically on the board to, to help make decisions that has a certain level of voting rights. They might do something called preference shares, which a lot of founders are terrified of, which means uh, let's you guarantee a return to the VC. So let's say you you guarantee the the VC is um, investing five million into your business, and you've guaranteed them a minimum two x return. So they're definitely going to get ten million back. 
you sell your company that the company doesn't do as well as you think and you end up selling the company for 10 million we have to pay back the preference shares of the vc you've promised a 2x return from so you have to pay them their 10 million first and you take what's left ah i sold it for 10 million there's nothing left yeah. <laughs> so so this can be this can be worrying for a founder but there's good reasons why vcs ask for that and and we've got a whole blog post on it but that's not till mm. later and if you've got a good lawyer you just need to get a good lawyer right because they'll put these terms in and you need to be able to get out of these terms or have um, and not be carried away by them but having a good lawyer is uh, on, on the on these deals is is a fundamental when you get to that stage yeah and it's so it's so interesting to understand the whole uh, the whole process all the way up to you know when you're investing in massive amounts well, just, so to, just to reassure your your audience like when you're talking to the high net worth individuals the angel investors they just they typically just end up with ordinary shares just like you there's no special yeah. voting rights they have 20 percent of the company you have 80 percent. you have all the decision making everything just you have their cash as well you, you just answered my question that's perfect i was going to say to you there's a bit more to go to be fair so i was going to say to you right so you know I've got a company, I've managed to bring on uh, an angel investor that's slightly more professional than a high net worth individual. They've got, you know, like, like you say, five, 10 investments a year. They invest, you know, I don't know, half a million. Is that realistic into my business? Yeah. What, what happens the next day or the next month? What, just, just to make people's nerves at ease. What, what happens from there? You know, you said they might give you a bit of This is why doing your due diligence is so important because you could end up with an active investor who wants to have monthly meetings, you might have monthly updates sent their way. And as a side note, I'd, I'd recommend you do that anyway, regardless of the investor, because when you need their money later, it's always good for them to have seen the progress you've made with the money, with the first lot of money that they've, they've invested. But they might be saying, like contacting you every week or every month or every quarter for an update, and you should already have that agreement in place and you should be doing those things. They might be an advisor on the board, so they might be at the end of the call, the end of a WhatsApp message, just going, I've got a problem. How do we do this? Or what would your advice be on that? And, and you might be able to have those conversations. Or they might be a completely passive investor that just says, look, I, I've invested in you. I've invested in this business. Here's my cash. I've got too much to do to worry about anything else. Just crack on. Give me, give me a quarterly update and we'll see where we are in 12 months time. And you never hear from them again. You might hate, so, you might yeah. love that idea, or you might hate that idea because you're like, but I've got all this money and I want to spend it in the right way and get the best return. I need someone with some experience to advise me. And you might want the active investor. So it's really important to just figure out who your investor is and, and what they're going to expect from you once they've deposited the cash in, in your bank. Yeah, it makes complete sense. And it's like you say, it's communication, isn't it? Like it's yeah. bread and butter communication. It's just communication, just having a conversation with these people. Like they're an individual, like you're on the same page, you're at the same level, you're not treating them like some god or some demigod that you have to impress. Just two brilliant business minds talking about how to turn this amazing concept into a highly profitable reality. And it's just conversations with someone who's equally as qualified as you in most cases. Yeah. Um, it's it's nothing more than that yeah i mean so you and i have spoken very briefly before about what an investor would look in an actual entrepreneur so we've spoken about obviously you know the, the pitch decks the branding the elements that you have to do there the financials 
is there anything that someone would look for in an actual entrepreneur or something that an entrepreneur listening to this could start to do about themselves to try and make themselves more investable? Is that even something that we should be thinking about or is it basically down to the, the pitch deck? No, 100%. I mean, that's why my book's called Investable Entrepreneur and not Investable Business, right? It's about <laughs> you as a founder. So ultimately, an investor is looking for two things. First, brilliant business idea with the caveat that that needs to be in a sizable market that's that, that could achieve huge growth. But the second thing they're looking for is an incredible founder who can execute on that vision because we can all have ideas, but only the best founders can can execute on them or can bring a team of people around them who also believe in that idea that want to execute on that vision. Um, and it, that's down to the entrepreneur to be highly resourceful, be able to pitch that vision and bring attract capital, attract people, talent, partnerships, all of those things to the table. So that's the first thing they're looking for. And usually they get a flavor of that through the pitch, right? The pitch kind of says, here's a highly resourceful entrepreneur. Here's someone who can pitch an amazing vision. I'm excited by it. If I can get excited by it, so can commercial partners, so can top talent. This is an incredible, um, an incredible vision that we can all get excited by. Then they're looking for someone who has, uh, who has understands the financial risks involved. You're not a blind optimist. You're not just sort of running around telling people, give me, 500k i'm going to turn that into 50 million in in three years time like you have a financial plan you have a financial vision you know what you need to spend and when to make that happen you understand the financial risks that are involved and that's where your financial projections come in and, and really help you articulate that to the to the investor and then the final thing they're looking for is obviously a, a founder who can execute an implementation strategy they can they go right this is where my idea is now and here's the stepping stones i need to take to get it from where it is today to where i need it to be tomorrow here's the short-term plan to get to our next funding round and here's the longer term plan that gets us to profitability and then to to high growth high scale high returns like this is the short and the long-term plan and they know all of these things are going to change your numbers, your forecasts are going to change. Your strategic plan is going to change over time as you learn more about your market, what works, what doesn't work, more about your customers, more about your product. But that's not really the point. The point is to kind of say, I have a plan. I know what I need to do. And because I'm able to formulate a plan now, you can see how I think strategically. And therefore, you can trust that when times are tough or things change or I learn something new about the market, we're going to make the right strategic decision for the benefit of this business so that you can get a return on your investment. So it's all about, you know, these things we talk about, the things we produce at Robot Mascot, the business plan, the financials, the pitch materials, it's yes, those documents are important, but it's what they say about the entrepreneur, what they say about their strategic insights, their ability to, to actually turn this vision into reality. That's what they're really investing in, that the things we create, they're just a tool to express that to to an investor in a in a really clear and articulate way but but what they're really looking for is who's the person behind that business plan what what how do they think i i find it all so interesting i can, I can talk about it all day um <laughs> for those that that would love to learn more just specifically at this part here um james's book the investor entrepreneur we will put it in the show notes and uh, the description below because it is well worth the read isn't it is a well i'm sure you're going to say yes but i awesome. i yes <laughs> <laughs> I'm recommending it as well. It's a, a fantastic book. One of the questions I think some people will have uh, listening to this as we have a fairly global audience is, is, is taking on investment the same in the UK where you are as it would be for me in Dubai, you know, and other people listening in America around the world? What, how, is there any processes that are different? 
Yeah, I think everything we talked about today is relevant wherever you are in the in the world. Like investors invest in people, not businesses. Investors invest in strategic individuals, not ideas. There's just a different balance of of that across the across the world. So in Europe, um, where the UK is the main the main market, but but um, across Europe we tend to find there's much more emphasis on the strategic planning and the financials and people don't get quite so carried away with the vision um, as they do in the States, for example. So in Europe, 80% of our early stage investors are ex-finance people, ex-directors, ex-city bosses who, who ran banks or, or investment funds. So they come at it from spreadsheets and kind of budgeting perspective. Whereas in the States, you go to Silicon Valley, 80% of the investors in Silicon Valley are ex-entrepreneurs. So they're like, we know it's all bullshit. We know we just need to kind of invest in stuff and kind of roll with the punches and make it work. I like you. I like your vision. I know you're going to figure something out, even if it's not this. Here's some cash. And that's kind of the, you know, there's a bit more to it than that. But that if we were to make the contrast, you know, Europeans are much more conservative in their approach. Americans less conservative there's a different um, sense of failure like in the UK certainly like it's very British thing to be afraid of failure and to and to kind of try and not talk about your failures and, and almost try and reflect them as positives whereas in the states it seems to be oh look I've failed 10 businesses before so this is definitely going to work because I've learned so much from the other and everyone's like yeah you how many failure badges have you got the more failure badges you've got the more likely you are to succeed the next time and there's just a wholly different approach to to the way that they that they see it so there's just a different emphasis on these things that I've talked about today and and for those of you in, in Dubai it's obviously Locally, you're probably going to find slightly more sort of conservative behind the numbers, business planning, um, less kind of carried away by visions, uh, probably slightly more European in their in their thinking. Um, but you're probably also going to be looking at a more international market for investment and you're going to be speaking to both European, UK based investors and probably US based investors, I would have thought as well. So having that in mind and making sure you've got all of these things in place. And that's the key, right, is you, you give the investors this kind of this this kind of almost this buffet of of options. Here's my pitch, here's my financials, here's my business plan, like we've got all the detail there. And if you're vision focused, they just they just zoom in on the pitch and they talk to you about the vision. If they love to get in nitty gritty in the financials, they zoom in there and they start having good discussions with you there. Every investor has a slightly different background. Some come from a marketing background and they really want to go into your marketing strategy. Others come from a finance background and want to go into the forecast. Others come from a product background and want to delve into your products. You need to have all these things ready to have the right conversations with the investors that care about the things they care about. I guess it goes back to what you said earlier about, you know, the dragon's den analogy. If an investor, if you walk into an you know, investor's den or whatever it is, a, a pitch, and they understand the industry straight away, you're more likely to get them on board in the same way as if they like marketing and your marketing's good, they're going to come yeah. more towards you. Yeah, so you look at, I don't know how many of your audience watch Dragon's Den in the UK, but as they change the profile of the investors onto the onto the show you start to have very different conversations so they recently brought on Stephen Butler who has made loads of money in in through sort of social media marketing and is much younger entrepreneur so he zooms straight into and how are we taking to this mark to market using influencers and using social media these were conversations that were never happening with a different panel where they were all True. kind of in their 60s so the investor will zoom into the bit 
that they that they care about. Peter Jones always bang on the numbers. Like he his math his ability on maths is incredible and he's always there on the numbers and wants to know the numbers. He very rarely asks about their go to market or marketing strategy. He just wants to know the numbers. Every investor has their own kind of personal background and areas they feel comfortable talking about. And that makes that's what they're using to make a decision on whether or not you're a good investment opportunity. Yeah, and to, and to the same point there, you actually see the businesses develop over time. If you watched it 15 years ago, it was very much inventions and, and sort of bricks and mortar. And now people do come in with apps and these, you know, something that doesn't look very different. You know, it might be a, a healthcare product. It doesn't look very different, but the branding's incredible. And then Stephen Barlett's all over it because he's like, I know we could use this to market this way and there's different routes to market. It's incredible That's to it. watch them think and learn. Yeah, and you don't know. A lot of people, and this is a mistake that I think a lot of founders make, and I think some investors make as well, to be fair, certainly these high, the, the, the high net worth individuals, the angel investors, this idea that you have to be first to market, you have to be the yeah trying to show that no one ever has done this before. This is completely unique and different. They're normally the ones that fail. The ones that succeed are normally the second, third or fourth to market who have seen the failures happen and gone, well, we're not doing it that way. We're going to do it this way. <laughs> So, so actually the, the idea of going, this has never been done before. It's the first of the market is, is kind of making it a really high risk proposition. Whereas he said, look, these people tried it and they failed because of these reasons. And because of that, our approach is this, and we've built this as a result. And therefore we're actually starting to see traction where someone else failed. And suddenly you've de-risked the investment opportunity and you've gone, we're doing exactly the same as these other guys, but we have this, this, and the, the other. In addition to that, and that makes us more competitive, we'll be able to gain larger market share more quickly mm-hmm. and we'll quickly become a competitor to this incumbent and we'll, we'll wipe them off the face of the face of the map. Hearing you say that immediately makes me think of, of Facebook in the early days where they were not the first sort of platform on the internet where you could do things, no. but they were the first one to really bring community together. And then Threads more recently, that, that is not a new idea, but they've no. done it in a different way and they've made that path path of least resistance so easy from Instagram to threats. Yeah. It's so obvious to see, right? That's it. And yeah, Facebook, I think before that it was what, MySpace, Bebo, right? all yeah. sorts of all sorts of platforms. But it was just Facebook where we were able to take the best bits from those platforms and kind of bring them together in something that that with a user interface that people really actually engaged with much more and it, it got that momentum that it needed. But yeah, yeah there's a lot lot of people wanting to to be, you know, even now trying to create the next Facebook, I think that boat's well and truly sailed. Like there's a point at which someone becomes so dominant in a market, you you can't use the argument of here's where they <laughs> failed. <laughs> like we're going to we're going to succeed in this way. Um, but for most startups, you're trying to de-risk this, and you can de-risk it by kind of going here's here's some examples of where people have done well or, or failed that we're going to leverage for our own success. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah, I completely agree. Um, rightly so, we've spoken a lot about investment, uh, James, which is, is perfect. I really want to touch on on you a bit more. You know, you, you've had a really interesting story. And my question really is, what's the most important lesson you think you've learned in your career so far that it's really brought you forward? Well, from a from a business perspective, I, I think really understanding the power of sales and marketing. So without lead generation, without a repeatable sales funnel, 
you don't really have a business. You have a team of people who are really good at executing on something, or you have a really good piece of technology. But if no one's going to use it, no one's going to access it, then it's worthless. So the only, you know, everything's downstream of, of leads and sales and marketing. And, and I think a lot of businesses try and outsource that too soon. And they go, I'm not a salesperson. I'm just the founder of the business. And they ultimately fail because they're not willing to get their hands dirty on sales. Like no one can sell your business better than you, the founder. And the biggest challenge, you can get relinquish everything else, all of the delivery, all of the operations, everything. The last thing that should go is the sales because that should be with the founder until the point where it can't be anymore because you're too big. And then you need to find a way to transition that over. That's the hardest part of business. Um, and I think realizing that and the power that has that, that without sales, you have no business, um, was the, was the biggest, one of the biggest learning curves for me, I think, because once we nailed that, our business just flew exactly sure, the same, yeah. product, same team. But as soon as, as soon as we nailed that piece, our business just went flying. Just articulated the value more clearly. Communication again, isn't yeah, it? It's, it's, it's common really, It wasn't even that. I think we, we didn't need to articulate the, the value anymore. We were doing a good job at converting the sales. We, we weren't getting enough leads. If you don't get enough leads, you can't make enough sales. So if you can't, if you can't get a repeatable sales and marketing strategy that allows you to sell at scale, then you're never going to grow as a, as a business. And it's really hard to do. But once you figure it out, um, you kind of get to a point we're still not there yet, but eventually you get to a point where you can print money because, you know, for every one pound I put into my marketing funnel, I get a hundred pounds back or dollars back. It's kind of a license to print money, isn't it? Once you're at that point. So that's always the holy yeah, grail. I mean, um, exactly. So everyone's searching for, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. the holy grail. I like it. So in this, in the business, the size of it is, is it the size of the business now? And obviously, like you say, you're touching with, you're touching with founders and entrepreneurs that are looking for, massive amount of money um, so there's obviously a lot of pressure on what you do how, how do you what are your coping me mechanisms for for pressure yeah that's a good one um probably very badly um <laughs> to be honest but I think, you know for me it's always been um i work really hard during the week and if i need to work late i work late and and i'm just a you know I, i've got a very kind of focused mind and I kind of hyper focus on stuff and I just want to get it done and I can't kind of rest until that's just gone and out of the door. Um, but I'm, yeah. I've got very good at making sure I'm available for the kids between um, sort of tea time and bedtime. And then if I need to go back to work, I'll go back to work and making sure I always take the weekend off. I never work a Saturday or a Sunday, always spend that with the family. And that's been since day one. That's never changed um, throughout the 10 years we've been running this business. So. I think um, for me, that's my that's how I de-stress. I, I make sure that I work really hard nine till five, Monday to Friday, and then keep a time aside in the evenings and, and the full weekends to just decompress, be with the kids. And yeah, just a smile and a giggle from them is enough to make all of your worries go away, to be honest. Yeah, absolutely. So, so what about productivity and, and delegation so you've got a, a fairly big team and to keep yeah. yourself productive throughout the week and make sure you have that time of your with your kids mm -hmm. how what are your what are your tips or how do you keep yourself accountable and productive yeah. throughout that week i think the biggest so productivity is a good one um that that this can work whether you've got a co-founding partner or, or or just a team but something we do and this came from our growth mentor is a, is a three to six list so every week you get together as a team and you go, what are three to six things I'm going to do outside of my day-to-day -day role 
that are going to drive the business forward. I'm going to template this. I'm going to I'm going to create an asset for that. I'm going to relook at this process or whatever it may be. I'm going to do what three to six things am I going to do to drive the business forward? And when you share that, and if you're a solopreneur, share it with your partner, with a friend, ask for a friend if they can be your accountability partner. But there's something about writing that down and sharing it with someone else or a group of people because we're social creatures and we're brought up like if we if me and you were living in a cave as cavemen and I said I'm going to go out and find us some food you sit back and look after everything like that's my responsibility now and if, if I don't do that you don't eat and as mm. we've been brought up our, our psychologically kind of brought up in that way that you don't let your team down like if I said I was going to go find some berries I better find some berries because that was my job so as soon as you say these are the three things I'm going to do this week if you say it to yourself in your head you'll just go oh, I'll do those next week but if you say it out loud to someone else suddenly psychologically you're much more likely to get those things done so that's the first thing and then the second thing on productivity just start making a list of everything that you do during the week where you think someone else could do this and then start hiring um, virtual marketing assistants, virtual PAs, um, and giving them little job lists to do. Just build that up over time because you can quite quickly leverage a huge amount of time by taking a lot of the admin tasks out of your day and giving them to a virtual PA or a virtual marketing assistant who can do them at an hourly rate, a fraction of your own as the founder of the company. And that gives you more time to leverage on those high value tasks mm -hmm. like doing the sales calls and, and those types of things that, that keep the business going. So yeah, they would be my two tips. Yeah. That, that second one as well with delegation, I think is so important because we've all got this, the things that we like to do, you know, as you know, humans have these sort of geniuses as Roger Hamilton would say, and you've got the things that you like, maybe it's ideas or you like systems, you know, you're introvert, extrovert and being able to delegate the things that maybe you don't need to do, but also you don't like to do in some cases, as long as it's not the sales and the bits you need to be there for, like you yeah. said, that can actually have a massive positive impact on your on your personality, I think. If yeah. you get rid of the stuff you really don't like, like the admin bits you really don't want to do. Yeah, it's the it's stuff really you powerful. don't like and, and the stuff that doesn't have a massive strategic downside if someone was to sort of do it wrong. And and you want to be able to create processes and kind of do a screen share of kind of this is how I do it, but it should be kind of admin tasks, not you know, two big things in business, right? One, the delivery of the product, because that needs to be good to keep your reputation. And two, the sales. They're the two final things. Everything else, finance, admin, even onboarding a client, that can all be that can all be outsourced to someone else. And then you get a really good delivery team that you train up in your, your approach. And then you eventually get a really good sales team that you train up to be able to sell the product. But they're the last two things to go is delivery and and, and operations. Everything else is just noise. Um, so delivery and sales is yours. Everything else is just noise. You can get you can get an admin assistant to do that for a few dollars an hour. Yeah, perfect. James, I want to ask you something that I've asked everyone so far, and it's a book recommendation. I'd love that book recommendation from yeah. you. I'm going to be cheeky. I'm going to recommend two, but they're both by the same author, so hopefully that's allowed. Um, so that's it's, fine. It's, <laughs> yeah. So it's Key Person of Influence by Daniel Priestley and Oversubscribed by, by Daniel Priestley. So these are two books that have absolutely transformed my life as an entrepreneur and, and our business. Once, once we learn and properly applied the strategies in those books, our business grew 300% in the first year after, 200% the year after that, and it continues to grow. Um, 
So those two books are absolutely critical. Um, one thing I would say about books is they're great, but when you find a blueprint that you think that resonates with you, just focus on that one because you can overload yourself by going, oh, and this person says this and this, person, and you try and mash them all together to create the ultimate strategy. And then you kind of don't do any of it well. So trying to find one that resonates with you. And this one really resonated with me and just focus on it and then start reading again and kind of go right now, how can we learn from other people once we've got this one in place? How can we leverage that and how can we build that? That's how I've found, because otherwise you get overwhelmed of, of ideas uh, and, and strategies. Uh, but yeah, those two uh, absolute killers. Yeah, great books, both of those. And that's a, that's a really, really good point to bring up, actually, I think, because, you know, picking one mentor, because there's so many strategies, you know, strategy is usually not the issue. It's picking a mentor and following their path. And I think Alex Hormozzi said pretty recently, he's far more impressed by someone that's read three books in a year and implemented everything than someone who's read 100 and can't remember anything out of them. I mean, there's no point in yeah. just counting up the tally of books you've read if you haven't implemented and made that change. Yeah. Yeah, it doesn't make you a successful entrepreneur to have a, li a reading list of 100 books. Um, no, so, exactly. Yeah. And the other, the other question. Sorry, you said something. I say execution's where it's at. Execution's the key. And you can only execute so much in any given time. So you need to really focus on once you find something you read that resonates with you and you think this would work for me, just go all in on that. Yeah, absolutely. Great, great advice. The other question I've got that I've asked everyone is, um, if you had a full free day, what would you do? Full free? So, I mean, for me, like every every free moment I have is to spend it with my family, spend it with my kids. Um, they're only young once, they're two and five, and they grow up quick, right? And and I've got time when they leave home to to do other things but for now it's like every every spare moment i have is to to spend it with them before it's too late oh that's awesome <laughs> how can people find you james i've already said we'll have the book in the in the show notes below what's the best way people can get in touch with you or, or see more of your work yeah connect with me on linkedin um just search james church i should come up um you can go to pitchready.co.uk um there's a quiz there where you can sort of test your investor readiness you can see how pitch ready you are and, and get a score and a report then it offers you a load of goodies after that um, like some free strategy sessions and that kind of thing so yeah pitchready.co.uk is a great way to to just start exploring whether or not raising investments right for you and whether you're ready to to start thinking about that perfect well it's been an absolute pleasure having you on thank you so much and i hope to uh, catch you soon yeah, thank you, Freddie. It's been amazing. Thanks for thanks for having me.